You're listening to the Perth Podcast from the Perth School, Cambridge. Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Perth School. My name is Tobias Bowne and over the next few minutes I'll be in conversation with Ed Elliott, the head of the Perth School in Cambridge, a role he's held since 2008 after joining the school in 1997. The aim behind this conversation is to get to know Ed a little bit better, the man behind the job title, to find out some of his thoughts about the school and some of his thoughts on life in general. So Ed, thank you very much for joining us today and for giving up the time. And thank you, Tobias. It's an absolute pleasure. So I'd like to start by asking you to cast your mind back. If in this room today we had a 10-year-old Ed Elliott, would you be surprised to see yourself in the head's office all these years later, or do you think that was always part of the plan? I don't think anyone knows at 10 what they're going to be doing at at 52. Uh, And sometimes you make sense of things by looking back in time rather than forward in time. But knowing what I know now about my childhood experiences, then, then yes, it does make sense. To explain very briefly, I came from a family of farmers. They've been farmers since 1066. I have a twin brother who's still a farm labourer. Uh, I grew up in a family that had no books, uh, no interest in academia, and my mum died when I was 11, having had cancer for two years. So it was quite a difficult childhood. But I was fortunate. I got a place at a grammar school. I had some wonderful teachers who introduced me to books, who gave me excellent pastoral care, who made a real difference to my personal development. And I think having benefited from that, I wanted to return the favour to future generations. And here I am. So was it a straight line then from that point in your education into going into teaching or did you experience other things in between? Not a straight line. Um, but then I think you learn a lot from um, curved lines and, and the scenic route in life rather than the direct motorway. Like many people, uh, you know, I did well at school. Uh, I got a place at at, at Oxford University, Uh, I got a good degree, and I sort of remember my dad saying, well, you've got this wonderful degree, you ought to sort of commoditise it, Uh, by which I I think he meant you you ought to get a job that pays really well. So I I went for a while to work for a company called Delarue, Uh, and Delarue print banknotes and checkbooks and credit cards. And in the early 1990s, business was booming for Delarue because uh, the USSR had collapsed. There were lots of new countries that needed new currencies. So I spent a year basically working on banknotes with pictures of various politicians, some good, some less good, uh, as we launched new currencies around the world. At one level, it was geopolitically interesting. At another level, it was personally very unrewarding Uh, and having tried to make my fortune even print my fortune I guess (laughs) uh, for a year I I decided it wasn't for me I left Delarue one Friday and I began teaching at Whitgift School in Croydon the following Monday with no PGCAE and and no real uh, teacher experience it was a baptism of fire in so many ways it must have been yeah but what was it that made you think that you wanted to make that switch you you mentioned about it being a, a rewarding job and what do you think are the main rewards that come from actually being a teacher and working in the sector with young people as a teacher and as a head teacher you genuinely have an opportunity to make the future 
better. And there aren't that many people who can say that about their job. In, in the knowledge, in the skills, in the qualities, in the moral compass that we give young people, we're basically determining what the world is going to be like in 20, 30, 40 years time. And if we can have positive influences on children, if we can give children the skills, qualities that they need to live good, fulfilling lives, then that's making the future better. And I, I can't think of a more worthwhile job. I mean, businesses always talk about investment and you've got to invest in the future. Well, from a society's perspective, investing in the future is called education. And it's not just about what the children know, which is often the focus of debate and discussion, it's about how they behave and the moral compass that they have to take them through their adult lives. And what about that transition then from teacher into head teacher? It's not something that the vast majority of teachers will ever have experience of. What was it that made you think actually you'd like to hold that position, you'd like to move the school forward uh, under your leadership? Through the values you set for the school, through the policies that you have, uh, through the procedures, through the professional development, you actually work with all the staff and therefore that benefits all of the pupils. So instead of helping 200 children directly, you can help, in the person's case, potentially 1,700. So you can achieve a scale of impact by being a leader that you can't as a teacher. Okay, so if you cast your mind back to when you were at school, because the idea behind this conversation is for us to get to know the person behind the job title a little bit. So if we could ask you to reflect back to those years, what was your favourite subject in school and what would your teachers have said about you? Well, I've never had a favourite subject. So I've, subjects are artificial constraints. Uh, you know, the real world doesn't deal in, in subjects. Uh, I guess what I'm really interested in, and it's the subject I continue to teach, um, is place. Uh, and the subject I, I call place in, 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 in the Perth curriculum, local studies. And, and to understand a place, you actually have to understand its history, its geography, its geology, the ecology, the culture of the people who live there. So I am inherently multidisciplinary. I, I don't like being confined by subject boundaries. I think if you're really pursuing knowledge and understanding you have to cross boundaries and you have to synthesize, you have to bring together uh, knowledge and information. And you talked a lot about uh, inspiration from your teachers. Uh, would you care to comment on what they might have said about you in the second part of that question? Would they have predicted you would have uh, become the head of the first school in 2008? <laughs> uh, I, I, who knows? I mean, I, I was, I confess, uh, head boy at my school. Um, and I, I guess, you know, people must have seen some, some leadership potential. You know, it's a bit like the captain on the bridge. You know, you, you're, you're always there and you'll be the last person off the ship and, and you lead by example. And, and, and leadership isn't about you, it's about others, and it's about being a vocationalist, it's about trying to get the best outcomes for all the children and all the staff in the school. So it's far less about me and far, far more about 
them. And it's also acting with, in, with integrity. Um, I think it's really, really important uh, when, when you use the word good. I always think there are two definitions of good. One is, are you good at your job in terms of performance? And the second is, are you good at your job in terms of acting with integrity and decency and always trying to do the right thing, even when the right thing is not the easy thing? Uh, and what I aspire personally to do is to be good in both categories. What I hope I can do is to encourage others to be good in both categories. So looking back on your career, I know here at the Purse we prioritise personal development in so many different ways. And how do you think you've changed or uh, developed your ideas about education? So have you softened on any particular thing? Have you changed your priorities about what a school should be thinking about as you've gone through the last 10, 20 years? I'd, I'd say that, that I have, perhaps partly as my own personal experiences have unfolded, but perhaps also to represent changes in, in wider society. I've said that as a sort of keen young teacher, I was very, very focused on academic outcomes. Uh, you know, they were the quantifiable bits of education. You know, how many A stars did your children get? Which universities did they go to? And those are still important outcomes. But increasingly, I've come to recognize that children and adults aren't successful if they are not happy and at ease with themselves, settled in their own skin. So actually, over time, I've attached far, far more importance to the pastoral side of the school uh, and trying to get children's well-being to the best place that I can uh, in order that they can be happy, in order that they can progress. And also to encourage children to behave well towards each other because that improves the overall health, the overall positivity of the community. And of course, it, it's not easy. It's, it's work that will never be done. You know, we all know that, that children have prefrontal cortexes that are still developing and that their decision-making as adolescents isn't always perfect, but then adult decision-making isn't perfect either. So there will always be problems, but a problem is basically a learning opportunity. When, when something goes wrong in a relationship, Yes, there will inevitably be some upset, but then once the upset has passed, what can we learn from whatever it was that went wrong so we can become better? And during their years at school, what would you say is the most important thing that a child can learn? What's the ultimate outcome for you when they leave us at whatever age, whether it's uh, 11, 16 or 18? What are we really aiming to try and produce or achieve with the children who come to the school? How long have you got? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a mean it's, question, that one, it, isn't it? it? There are so many different dimensions, um, and, I, and I think you probably have to sort of break it up into, into different chunks. Um, of course, you know, for many children, they will need certain grade outcomes in order to progress to certain universities, and, and we can't ignore the realities of that situation. But I think grades are of short-lived value. They get you into your first university, into university. They might get you into your first job, but then they quickly sort of dissipate in, in worth. And to be honest, what you had to learn in order to get those grades gets forgotten equally quickly. So you know, knowledge of the periodic table probably isn't going to be that much use to you 
10 or 20 years after you leave school. So I think you then come on to, well, what are the durable outcomes of an education that last a lifetime? And this, this is where I often talk to alumni, to Orpiseans, and say, look, you know, you're 60, you're 70, you're 80. What bits of a person education are you still using today and that are clearly of long-term value? I define one of the school's values as intellectual curiosity and scholarship, meaning I'm giving children a sort of a toolbox of skills that they will use for the rest of their life. They're skills that might help them pass exams, but hopefully they're still using them in 50 years' time. And the sort of things that might be in that intellectual uh, toolbox um, that will last a lifetime, it's things like the ability to communicate well. You'll have heard me say before, maximum meaning, minimum number of words, beautifully expressed. You're probably failing the test badly today. But if you can do that, you can sell yourself, you can sell ideas you can be very successful. Obviously we need people to have digital skills for the digital world, um, but we also need to reflect that increasingly as processes get digitized, the jobs of tomorrow won't be the same as the jobs of today. And therefore, things that computers can't do will be the things that we really need to develop in children, because that's where the jobs will be in 20, 30 times. So the importance of creativity of imagination. Uh, we need obviously numerical skills because the world is very numerate but in some ways we don't want to ch teach children how to be second or third rate calculators. You know they've all got a calculator on their phone. Mm -hmm. What we should be teaching them is to know what numbers do tell us and what numbers don't tell us. Because numbers have a certainty attached to them that isn't always justified. Um, so that's a very long answer with too many words but saying that probably at the end of the day there is some sort of toolkit of intellectual skills and qualities that actually children can take with them from here all the way through their adult lives which is really really durable and lasts much longer than exam certificates and, and knowledge of the periodic table. Yes it's a humbling thought isn't it in some ways that we're preparing children for a, a world that we can't fully predict or really understand at this stage and you've referenced obviously the, the work of the school and the work of the individual students here but we should also give a nod to the parents as well and the role that they play so this is your opportunity then Ed if you had the chance to make one comment to every parent that would be a useful bit of advice maybe to guide them in how they could support their children through their academic journey and through developing the skills they need later in life what would be the one thing you'd like to say to all of them? Well, I'm going to be greedy and, and immediately go for more than one thing. Uh, I think I'd say a few things. I, I, I'd say, believe in your children. Uh, I would say, let your children be who they want to be, not who you would like them to be. I think very practically, I would warn all parents that being a teenager today is very different to being a teenager in the pre-digital world and that when you give your child their first mobile phone it's a bit like when you give them or they get their first car you know, it has a lot of responsibilities attached to it and ideally you'd, you'd pass a test before you used it 
Uh, and the, as a head teacher, one of the most damaging things I see is misuse of digital devices uh, in ways that harm children. Uh, and a lot of that misuse actually happens in families, homes, in bedrooms, late at night when parents have gone to sleep, they don't know what the children are doing, and because children are tired, they make a whole series of poor choices. So there's one practical thing I think every family should do is have a rule that an hour before bedtime, it also helps your sleep, all phones go off, they all stay downstairs where they're recharged. Probably a little line of phones, you know, parent phones and children's phones, and actually I think that would help with sleep. I think it would remove a lot of sources of poor behaviour. It would reduce the number of inappropriate messages and photographs sent late at night. It would reduce the risks of gaming and computer gaming addictions, etc., etc. May I ask, what are you most proud of uh, that the school has achieved during your tenure as head? I think there are again different answers to that. I mean, sometimes you can point to the tangible and, and you can say, look at all of these new buildings that are here that weren't here and the opportunities that children get from having the Peter Hall Performing Arts Centre, etc. I can look at the fact that we're, we're now co-ed and that you know, both boys and girls benefit from a purse education. I could look at the fact that we're a much more diverse school with children from a whole range of different socioeconomic and cultural backgrounds and that I think is a is a huge strength but ultimately I think you know when I finally hang up my, my my teaching boots what will really give me pleasure will probably be the really challenging children um, who perhaps I gave a second or third chance to and they did come good uh, and you actually think there was an intervention that you made that probably changed the course of that child's life quite significantly. Now, you know, those are few and far between, um, and they don't always work out. But when they do work out, that's, that's a real tangible sense that you've made a huge, huge difference. And that's the kind of story that sticks with you when you write your memoirs in the, the decades to come, isn't it? And, and to be honest, you know, that's, you know, the teachers who taught me made that kind of huge, huge difference. So I wanted to be like them. And, you know, copying is in, in some ways the, you know, the ultimate tribute. They were so good, I wanted to be them. So uh, we're living through some worrying times with a range of global issues dominating the headlines and uh, for many closer to home obviously lots of financial concerns. One of your roles is to think strategically isn't it about what the school should do in response to those and where the school wants to be in five ten years time. What do you think are the biggest challenges on the horizon for the school in the next couple of years? So I think I think we can't ignore financial gravity and um, the cost of living crisis and the economic challenges that our parents face, our teachers face, our employees face, um, and the school faces. And, and I think we've got to think carefully about how we navigate our way through that. So I think one of our challenges is to say, well, we can't just keep charging people more and more and more. Um, where can we develop other sources of, of income? Uh, and we've been doing quite a lot of that. Uh, so whether it's our summer school program, uh, whether it's our overseas schools, or, or whether it's our fundraising, we're attempting to raise income from other sources apart from parents 
so that we can maintain the quality of the school but without placing a, a huge burden on our parents. And given all those challenges and the many balls you're juggling to, to try and meet them, how do you relax? What do you spend your time doing away from school? My family were farmers, remember, since 1066, and I think that, that gene still runs strong in me. So when I need to relax, uh, I, I get a, a spade and I start digging. And I thought I was alone in that, and then I saw an article in the press at the weekend saying that there's a whole group of people who, who, who dig for well-being. Uh, so I'm perhaps do you not plant as... something as well, or just dig holes? Uh, no, no, I do plant as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that, that is the farmer in me. Uh, and I do really enjoy um, filling the house with flowers that I've grown uh, and, and consuming the food that I've grown. Uh, I think it gets you close to nature. I think it gets you out in, in the fresh air. And I think there's a sense of, 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 of achievement and gratification when you know, seed turns to plant and is then harvested. And that's a tangible outcome in the way that a lot of what we do in, in schools, perhaps the, the outcomes aren't quite as tangible or quite as immediate. And yet a wonderful metaphor in some ways for what happens in school in terms of the growth of the, the young people who come through the doors. We have just that one final surprise for you to round off our conversation. If you wouldn't mind a quick fire Q&A. So this is very much not a considered answer, but the gut reaction to uh, these questions so we can try and get to know you just even more from what we've seen so far. And some of these will pick up on themes that we've explored earlier in our conversation. So beach holiday or busy sightseeing trip? Sightseeing. Reading a book or watching a film? Reading a book. A night in or a night out? Uh, Nights in. Home cooked food or your favourite takeaway? Home cooked food. Cats or dogs? Two retrievers. Always a controversial one, that one. Walking or cycling, obviously Cambridge being the city of bikes, are you often on your bike? Uh, I am on my bike sometimes, but increasingly I'm a, I, I am a walker. Too many potholes in the road, wish the council would fill them. Talking to someone on the phone or sending a text? Talking. You can't tell emotional intelligence from a text. Breakfast or dinner? Breakfast, probably. <laughs> being up late or rising early? I do both. Online meetings or face-to-face -face conversations? Face-to-face, -face, emotional intelligence again. If you're out for a meal, starter or dessert? Starter. Snow or sunshine? Sunshine. Jeans or smart trousers? Chinos. <laughs> and thinking or doing? Both. Well, thank you so much, Ed, for your time and your generosity and your honesty with your answers there. Uh, it's been great to get to know a bit more about the person behind the job title. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tobias.